invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter uh, 2. For those of you not familiar with the Bible, Colossians is near the back of the Bible. It's after the big Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the Corinthian books. You'll find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. We call General Electric Power Company. You can remember it that way, G-E-P-C, those four books going together. And uh, look at Colossians, the C. We're in chapter 2. And Paul's been talking at length about Christ and the effects of the cross in, uh, uh, in the world as a result of his great work. And here, in starting in verse 13, we'll hear more about how the, the cross affects us today. Hear the word of the Lord. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On November 1st, 2015, Kyle Peace went to do something he had never done before, which was run the New York City Marathon, or should I say wheel the New York City Marathon. You see, he and his brother Brent and Evan had participated in lots of different races before, two Ironmans, 40 different um, other types of long-distance races. But this is the first time they're doing a marathon. And so Kyle, who had cerebral palsy, he's a wheelchair, he and his brother Brent went to New York to do the marathon. Well, the gun goes off, they start, and they're doing pretty well. They're doing seven-minute, 45-second miles. But then about the 12-mile mark, something bad happens. The wheel on his uh, chair, basically, or what they call stroller, it just shattered. And so, as he put it, he used, if I can find it here, a dirty old blanket and some string to try to tie it up to get it to go. He did that, and it went a little further, but then eventually they came halfway, and he's like, there's no way, we can't, we can't finish. But then the coolest thing happened. Other marathoners saw what was going on. A mother who had uh, two disabled kids of her own, as well as some of the firefighters. They're right there. And they all joined in. You can look up pictures if you go back and see them kind of holding the side of that stroller, and they completed the race. You see, their goal was to get it done in three hours and 20 minutes, and instead they got it done in seven hours and 20 minutes with the help of many others. They felt really good when they were done. You can imagine completing that race, how good you would feel, but yet it wasn't on their own that they did it. They needed others. Kyle, who had cerebral palsy, needed his brother. Kyle and his brother Brent, they needed others. You know, there are times in our lives where you and I feel our inability and we feel our weakness. It might be more physical, Sometimes we feel our age. Sometimes we feel an injury or maybe a past injury. Sometimes it's emotional 
Why do I keep doing that thing? Have you ever said that? I've said that. Why do I keep doing? You know what that cry is? It's a cry of frustration, isn't it? It's admonition that I'm weak. I have inability. I can't do everything I set out to do. I can't do everything that I want to do. I actually have limits. I mean, that's a hard thing to say, especially in a culture and in a world where we think, oh no, I can do all things. If I just try harder, work smarter, the list goes on. Well, the cross, from one perspective, looks like inability. It looks like weakness. It looks like failure. As those people looked on that day as Jesus was crucified, I don't know if in their minds they would have said, yes, this is triumph. This is a win. Let's celebrate. But actually, in fact, that's what's taking place. So much so that Paul, as he's writing to the Colossians, this is something he's highlighting. He's highlighting the triumph of the cross. He's highlighting that through what Jesus did on the cross, there was actually a conquering that was taking place. A conquering of us, his people, and also a conquering over these principalities in the spiritual realm. Because God triumphed over us and over the principalities through the work of the cross, you and I actually stand triumphant. Not because of anything we've done, but because of in and through him. So this morning, as we enter and engage these three verses, so packed, so much to say here, I want us to ask this question. How do we stand triumphant in God because of the cross? How do we stand triumphant in God because of the cross? The first thing you'll see is that the cross has brought us from death to life. In verses 13 and 14, the cross has brought us from death to life. As Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, he's writing to them, encouraging them to live a life based on Christ and not any other belief system. You see, there was false teaching going on. And so Paul emphasizes Christ, how he came in the fullness of God in bodily form, verse 9, which resulted in the redemption of which resulted in the redemption of his people through his death, his resurrection, and his triumph over the cross. And so because of this, the Colossians should not be led astray by these false teachings, no matter how plausible they look, verse 4. But instead, they must base their lives on Christ. You see, Paul puts up Christ, who he is and what he has done, over and against the false teaching and the false teachers that's taking place in Colossians. So he writes them in verses 13 through 15 about what they were, what they became, and the cosmic effect that it had, the cosmic result. What they were, what they became, and the cosmic result. So as we think about the cross bringing us from death to life, Paul starts with, this is what you were. This is what you were. He says in verse 13, we were dead in our trespasses, dead in sin. Not mostly dead, like in Princess Bride, but all completely dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead. You see, we were living in a world where sin dominated our lives. We were what the Bible calls slaves to it. 
shackled to it. We couldn't help but do it before Christ. You see, we were born into this world with an imperfect nature, an imperfect disposition, what we would call, as the scriptures call, a sinful nature. We are not calibrated toward God when we come out of the womb. Think of it as a brand new car coming off the assembly line with its wheels out of alignment, right? That car isn't going to stay on the road unless someone is turning that wheel back. We're a bit like that. Now, we're not as bad as we could be, but everything we do before Christ was stained with sin. It's kind of like a pitcher of water and you put a couple drops of red food coloring in it. What happens to it, right? It mixes. It all becomes red. And then if I were to tell you separate it, that's a near impossible task. Then we can't separate the two. You see, we were prone to sin coming out of the womb. And because we have this sin nature that we've inherited, that's come to us all the way back from the beginning, from the beginning of time when one man, Adam, and one, and one woman, Eve, were put on this earth. And from them came by ordinary generation all the people we have today. And they were put in this garden and they lived in perfect relationship with God, with the earth, with one another. But then Satan came into the garden. He tempted Eve. And she looked at that fruit and that fruit was delightful for the eye. And so she took it and she ate it and she gave some to Adam. And he took and he ate it and something horrible, this thing called sin entered the world and it tainted, it disrupted, it came and attached itself to that which was good and corrupted it from that point forward in people, in the earth, in all relationships. And so it's no surprise, right, that we struggle in our relationships. First and foremost, our relationship with God, with our spouses, with our friends, with our family, relationships, they're broken. Something horrible was introduced into this world. And through his action, sin came. And we have this sin nature. And you know what? We've actually proven it true. We prove it true, don't we? Because we go and then we do things. Maybe you're like, no, Josh, I'm not sure about that. Let me ask you this question. What do you do when you have the feeling of guilt? You ever think about that? What do you do when you have the feeling of guilt? Why do you have guilt? Now, sometimes we can have false guilt, can't we? We shouldn't. But a lot of the times, we're feeling something, and it's pretty accurate. You see, the reason you feel that, the reason that it is there is because you sense that you did something that was wrong. And with the, you actually have a law written on your heart, a sense of right and wrong. And so when that happens, you're feeling that. This is something that Paul points out in Romans 2, verse 15. And I say all that just because ultimately we have broken God's law. And we've not lived up to its demands. We've not kept it perfectly. One of the things Paul says in verse 14, he uses this phrase, record of debt. You see, we are massively in debt. Massively in debt because every time we have broken the law, we've been like taking slips of paper, writing an IOU on it. And, uh, do some of you, I might be, I'm dating myself here, but... Uh, some of you may have seen the movie Dumb and Dumber back in 1994, not the other one that came recently, whenever that was. But Dumb and Dumber, Jim Carrey, um, Jeff Daniels, they play the character of Lloyd and Harry. And Lloyd and Harry are, are dumb, but they're good friends. They live in Providence, Rhode Island. 
and they discover this suitcase. And then when they discover this, they want to return it. And so they go in this excursion across America to Aspen, Colorado to return this suitcase. But along the way, they find out what the suitcase really has in it. Lots of money. See, it was a ransom drop and they found it. They didn't know that. But once they discover it and they find it, they go, we are going to be, you know what? Let's just spend a little bit. We'll be good for every start. Sell. They start taking all the money and spending it, right? They buy a sports car and these outrageous outfits, if you've seen the movie. And they're spending it, but they're filling out these little slips of paper along the way and putting it in the briefcase, you know, for whatever they bought, you know, Lamborghini, you know, $200,000 and put it in there. And then what happens is eventually, right, the kidnapper finds them. And it's time to pay up. He opens the suitcase and all these pieces of paper inside it. All these IOUs. And Lloyd and Harry are there facing the kidnapper and saying, we accounted for every penny. And you might want to hold on to those because they're as good as cash. (laughs) I think that can be like us sometimes. We can be like Lloyd. We can be like Harry. We can think that even though we're writing it down on slips of paper, our, our, our works, our deeds. We think of them as they're just as good. Like our intentions are just as good when they're not. You see, there was a record of debt. All these IOUs that we owed, that we couldn't pay, that we were generating with our sin. Tons and millions of them. And you and I, we were guilty. And payment, though, was needed. You see, God can't just dismiss it and go, oh, that's okay, no worries, no big deal. Actually, for God to do that would mean he's not just. Maybe he's denying himself his character from which emanates good. He couldn't deny himself. Payment was needed. There's consequences for sin. He just couldn't simply overlook it. He couldn't just wave it off. And you know what? He didn't wave it off. He did something about it. He did something about it. He set it aside. Verse 14. Now this doesn't mean he waved it off or he wished it away. He dealt with it. He took our debt, what we owed, and he nailed it to the cross. He took everything we owed, all those IOUs, and he nailed that to the cross. Christ's work, his sacrifice, paid the debt that you and I owed. All of it. Not just a portion, not just a part, but every last grain of sin from the beach of your life. Every last one of those. Nailed it to the cross. You see, this is something we couldn't pay. But I love what comes next. God made alive. If you look down at verse 13, God made alive. God did something. God had to do something because we couldn't. You see, what God did is we were dead and floating in the water. It doesn't matter how many life preservers you throw to a dead and floating person, they won't grab it. It doesn't matter how many words you say to a dead and floating person, they won't do anything. But rather, what God did is we were dead and floating. And he jumped off the ship and he swam to us and he grabbed us. He snatched us up, took us back, pulled us up on deck, laid us down and breathed life into us. And he made us alive. Something we never could have done in and of ourselves. This language that Paul uses here, his language he uses elsewhere 
In Romans 8, verse 11, he says, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And so Paul is saying, because basically Christ was raised from the dead, and since we are united with him, and because he rose, we too rose. We are raised with him. We are, in, we are with him in the heavenly realms, as it says later on in Colossians chapter 2. You see, as Paul says later on, we have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's a beautiful thing. Because he rose, we too will rise. We've been made alive. We are seated in the heavenly realms even now, awaiting the time when he comes. But something happened to our sin, did it not? When he came and made us alive. That's what it says next in verse 13. He took all of our sin, having forgiven us all our trespasses, as it says there. All of our sin, past, present, future. He forgave it through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. He showed you and I grace, giving us what we did not deserve. Our sin deserved his wrath and curse. But yet we didn't get that. Instead, God made us alive and he forgave our sin in the process. When Christ, think about this for a moment, when Christ died on the cross in space and time, he was purchasing our redemption. And then in time, it was actually applied to us. We were made alive and we responded with faith and repentance and we were justified, adopted, we're being sanctified. One day we'll be glorified, as it says in Romans 8. All that. Think about that for a moment. This ground that you stand on, you stand, there was a space, there was a date in world history, a date in world history when the God of the universe Came. Isn't that amazing? I can't fathom that. In space and time, who actually did that, came onto the, earth, the ground of this planet and did that for us, purchasing our redemption. That is an amazing thing. And he made us alive together with him, forgiving us our sins in the process through the sacrifice of his son. And you or I are alive with him, just as he is alive We've been made alive. And one day we will be with him finally and fully. Pam Bales is a really experienced hiker. In October 17th of 2010, she was going on one of her hikes. She was an experienced hiker. She was going out for a six-mile hike. She lives in New Hampshire. And she was hiking up and around. And the weather, it was winter, but she had all, all the gear, all the things she needed uh, in order to do the trek. And she, had, she was experienced. She had served with the um, Valley Search and Rescue Team. And so what she would do is she would put itinerary in her car where she parked. She'd also register itinerary with the Search and Rescue in case anything happened to her. And so that day she gears up, 8 a.m., planning on six hours of, of hiking. She has everything she needs. And I think when she was at the foot, it was like 60 degrees and so she starts climbing, and she's climbing for a couple hours, and then the weather moves in, and things change rapidly. So much so that she knows, I've got to go down. I'm not going to make it. If I keep going, I'll get too far, and then I'll, be, I'll need to be rescued. Because at that point, it was snowing, 
There was 50 mile an hour winds and it was 27 degrees. So she's going to go back down the mountain, but then something had been troubling her. You see, as she had been hiking in the snow, of course, she saw tracks. It's a trail. But it was interesting was the type of tracks they were. She noticed they were sneaker tracks. And for her, part of the search and rescue, experienced hiker, this person isn't equipped, whoever this is, hiking in sneakers with the snow and ice. So, she, so this bothered her. And she couldn't turn around, so she decided to go looking. She blew her whistle. She called out. She couldn't, nothing. She finally went off the trail and finally found a guy huddled between boulders. And he was alive. His eyes were alert, but he couldn't even turn to look at her. He was in hypothermic shock, just sitting there. And so she had all this gear and all these things with her. So she does her best. Her, her survival uh, instincts kick in and her training. And she does everything she can to warm him up. She gets him warm enough to stand up and go walking down the hill. Get back to the car. He struggled, but they eventually make it. It's much warmer down where his car is. And then she's like, where's your gear? Like, where's your change of clothes too? I don't see anything in your car. And he's like, oh, I hiked this a lot. Uh, the weather just came up on me. I'm sorry. Um, thank you for, thank you so much. And he got in his car and he drove away. And she's there going, what in the world just happened? Like, what just went on? That guy was going to die up there. And he's like, no big deal. She found out a week later, a letter came in to the, the president of the search and rescue. And let me read it for you. Um, I hope this reaches the right group of rescuers. This is hard to do, but must try. Part of my therapy. I want to remain anonymous, but I was called John. On Sunday, October 17th, I went up my favorite trail, Jewel, to end my life. Weather was to be bad, though no one else would be there. I was dressed to go quickly. Next thing I knew, this lady was talking to me, changing my clothes, giving me food, making me warmer. She just kept talking and calling me John, and I let her. Finally learned her name was Pam. <laughs> Conditions were horrible, and I said to leave me and get going, but she wouldn't. She got me up. She had me stay right behind her, still talking. I followed. I did think about running off. She couldn't see me, but I wanted to only take my life, not anyone else's. And I think she would have tried to find me. The entire time, she treated me with compassion, authority, confidence, and the impression that I mattered. With all that had been going wrong in my life, I didn't matter to me. But I did to Pam. She probably thought I was the stupidest hiker dressed like that. But I was never put down in any way. Chewed out, yes, in a kind way. Maybe I wasn't meant to die yet. I somehow still mattered in life. I became very embarrassed later on and never really thanked her properly. If she is an example of your organization, you must be the best group around. Please accept this small offer of appreciation for her effort to save me way beyond the limits of safety. No did not seem to be in her mind. I'm getting help with my mental needs. They will also help me find a job 
and I have temporary housing. I have a new direction, thanks to wonderful people like yourselves. I got your name from her pack patch and bumper sticker. My deepest thanks, John. That's a powerful story. <laughs> Sorry about that. He was trying... <laughs> he was trying to end his life. And she was trying to save it. He didn't want to live anymore. But yet she was willing to sacrifice her life in order to save his. He didn't want to be saved. But she compelled him. She saved him. She brought him back. You see at the cross, it's a beautiful picture. As Jesus triumphed over sin and death, paying the debt, forgiving our sins, he gave you life. He gave you life. The cross has brought us as people from death to life. And as if that isn't great enough, he also did something else that day. He broke something. You see, he broke the principality's power in verse 15. Verse 15 speaks of the principalities being disarmed and shamed by the cross. See, God's work not only did something for me, but it did something, and for you, but it did something in the spiritual world. You see, Paul talks here about these rulers and authorities which are appealing to these satanic powers. That's what he's referring to, these rulers and authorities. In chapter 2, verse 10, you see, his triumphant work disarmed these rulers and authorities. By Jesus triumphing on the cross, he triumphed over the rulers and authorities that actually held you, that actually had powers over you. Like he broke that. Christ's forgiveness of our sin and wiping out of our certificate of debt released us from the authority of the powers of darkness, which kept you and I in bondage. You see, the picture Paul is painting here for the Colossian mind would have been one of a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph in these days would have been a general goes out to battle or he goes out on a military campaign and he conquers. And so what would happen is, is that then in Rome, there would be this preparations for this long, pretty much all day affair, could be all day, of this huge parade all the way to the, the temple where they would make sacrifices to Jupiter, one of their gods. And how the parade would go is that all the captives, of, you know, whether it was people or kings, all the spoils from conquering them, they'd be chained and they would lead the procession, followed by the army, then followed by the general, who was led by four horses. And for a day, the general was king, in a sense. He had on this regalia, the purple robe, you know, that was celebrating his triumph. And he would ride through the city and the people look on. And so as Paul is saying this, I can imagine in their minds, oh, I can see the picture, right? Jesus in that chariot, the captives, the rulers and principalities in chains having been conquered, these spiritual dark forces, totally disarmed, being shamed and disgraced, because they're without power. Their power has been broken. They have been conquered. Jesus is king. And as he rides through that city, it's your city. And he's your king. And that parade is your parade, your triumph, because he conquered, you conquered as you look on. And as those powers are paraded in front of you, 
they no longer have power over you. Sin's power has been broken. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in him, the power of sin has been broken, even though its presence is still there. He has been conquered. His triumph is your triumph. As a follower of Christ, you no longer are dead. You no longer are disarmed. The rulers and authorities, they have been conquered. Your sin has been taken away. Your shame. You've been made alive. You've been forgiven. What does that do to you this morning? How does that affect you as you think about that? One of the things I had to confess this week as I was reading through this was, God, I confess because this sounds, I've heard it before, sounds casual, sounds all too familiar. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Roll credits. So sad. I had to repent of that this week because I need to see it and I need to know it and I need to take the beautiful diamond of the gospel again and again and turn it around and see the different facets, the beauty of a salvation that I have being made alive, not because of anything I've done, anything I could do, but because of him and what he's done. How does that affect you this morning? If you're someone here this morning who's not put their faith and trust in Jesus, not trusting in him, then what Paul says to you this morning, what I say to you is that you are still dead in your sin. You are still dead in your sin. The wrath of God is still upon you. But yet there's hope. God has still given you breath. Though you may be spiritually dead, you still have words. And with those words, you can pray to him. You can turn to him and you can say, rescue me. I don't understand this. I don't feel it. Please, help my unbelief. Change my heart. Save me. Rescue me. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, this is cause for us as we read this passage to rejoice. To rejoice because our sin has been conquered. Sin and death has been conquered. It no longer has us enslaved. But rather, because Christ triumphed, we too triumph. Sin's grip no longer has a grip on us, even though its presence is still there. And we can walk in faith to and for him by his grace and by his strength. Take this in this morning. Take it in again. The triumph of the cross over you and over the principalities, that is yours and it is guaranteed. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we need to taste anew of that salvation we have in you. The power of the cross, what was done for us, the triumph. We need to celebrate because your son triumphed. Your son rode in the chariot of the cross. And that is our triumph. And we stand forgiven. Thank you for that incredible grace. Help us to take that in and to live out of that daily for you. 
to your glory and honor. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our time of worship. And pray now that as we move to the Lord's table, you would help us to taste and see anew of your grace and your mercy and your love and your kindness and your desire to strengthen our faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.